0: the bane free radio hour
1: free radio hour it's a pleasure to have you along i am bain associate editor and your podcast host david Afsharirod. today we bring you something a little bit different and we hope you'll enjoy it justin watson sat down with mona lisa foster and howard andrew jones to discuss the career and the influence of one of science fiction and fantasy and mystery's greatest authors lee brackett let's take a listen
2: Welcome to the Bane Free Radio Hour. I'm Justin Watson, and I am joined today by Mona Lisa Foster, author of, amongst other things, the romantic space opera or the space operatic romance, Uh, I'll let her uh, define the genre, Ravages of Honor, Uh, the third book of which is due out soon, Uh, and coming from Bane on December 5th, uh, the adventure slash military science fiction novel Threading the Needle, uh, I'm also joined by m- uh, my new friend Howard Andrew Jones, author of, amongst other things, Lord of a Shattered Land, already out from Bane, and either already out or soon to be out by the time this airs, City of Marble and Blood, the follow-up to Lord of a Shattered Land. So thank you both for joining me this evening. Our Great pleasure. Yeah. So the genesis, th- this, this particular roundtable was my idea because... I've had the pleasure of reading both Threading the Needle uh, and Lord of a Shattered Land. I'm still working my way through the sequel, and uh, as I was telling my friends Howard and Mona Lisa before we jumped on, they energized me in a way few novels do. Um, one of the I don't know if YouTube can speak to this as well, but one of the side effects of trying to trying to become a professional writer is your editing brain gets really, really powerful, uh, and turning off your critical side to just enjoy the book gets more and more difficult. They're very good books that you can still work your way through, so to speak. And both Mona Lisa's work and Howard Andrew Jones's work uh, in those two novels really kind of shut off my editor for a while so I can just enjoy the book. That's how immersive they were, which is about as high praise as I can give another writer. So thanks guys for for that level of enjoyment. And today is a retrospective on the author and screenwriter lay bracket. Um, who will get into her bio in greater detail. But the reason I asked Mona Lisa and Howard to join me is Lay Brackett's screenwriting and uh, prose writing played an inspirational role for both these authors in very different ways for their work. So I wanted to join us together today to kind of look at Lay Brackett as a writer and how she's fed into all our work. Uh, And Howard, being the longest-standing fan of Lay Brackett, I think you'd like to kick us off with a selection from one of your
3: favorite works of Lay Bracket. Oh, sure. Well, I actually have a number of favorite works. This one is uh, this one is among them, and this is called The Last Days of Chondecor. And for people who've never read uh, Brackett, I just wanted to give them a taste of her wonderful world building and how quickly she involves you in his story. Listen to this. He came alone into the wine shop, wrapped in a dark red cloak with the cowl drawn over his head. He stood for a moment by the doorway, and one of the slim, dark, predatory women who live in those places went to him, with the silvery chiming from the little bells that were almost all she wore. I saw her smile up at him, and then, suddenly, the smile became fixed, and something happened to her eyes. She was no longer looking at the cloaked man, but through him, in the oddest fashion. It was as though he had become invisible. She went by him. Whether she passed some word along or not, I couldn't tell, but an empty space widened around the stranger and no one looked at him. They did not avoid looking at him. They simply refused to see him. He began to walk slowly along the crowded room. He was very tall and he moved with a fluid, powerful grace that was beautiful to watch. People drifted out of his way, not seeming to, but doing it. The air was thick with nameless smells, shrill with the laughter of women. Two tall barbarians, far gone in wine, were carrying on some intertribal feud and the yelling crowd had made room for them to fight. There was a silver pipe and a drum and a double banked harp making old wild music. Light brown bodies leaped and whirled through the laughter and the shouting and the smoke. The stranger walked through all this alone, untouched, unseen. He passed close to where I sat. Perhaps because I, of all the people in that place, not only saw him but stared at him, he gave me a glance of black eyes from under the shadow of his cowl. Eyes like brown coals, bright with suffering and rage. I'm going to skip ahead just a few paragraphs so I can bring this opening segment to an end. He uh the narrator asks his guide what's going on with this dude, what what's happening. Uh, and the guy really won't tell him. He basically says, hey, it's time to it's time to get moving. We need to leave here. Um He says, in a time-eaten streets of rock, you see tall Kesh Hillmen, nomads from the high plains of Upper Shun, lean dark men from the south who barter away the loot of forgotten tombs and temples, cosmopolitan sophisticates up from Kahora and the trade cities, where there are spaceports and all the appurtenances of modern civilization the red cloaked stranger was none of these. I I just, I just love that. I just love that. It sucks you right in the mystery. Who is this person? The beautiful language and the, just the powerful descriptive lines. She's, she was a master. She's been a favorite of mine for many years at this point.
2: Yeah, no, I, I, I love that opening passage and I agree. I'm, Uh, I came into Lay Bracket, I was actually a fan of Lay Bracket for decades without knowing that I was a fan of Lay Bracket because it came through the movies that she wrote, uh, which if you're not paying close attention, you might not know who wrote your favorite movies. Uh, uh, I've been going back through some of the classics with my kids and realizing that most of, well not most, but a large portion of my favorite Western movies were written by Lay Bracket. And even though... You're reading from I'm assuming that was a either a science fiction or like a planetary fantasy work.
3: That's that's first. one of her. Uh, that's one of her uh, stories set on her dying Mars. Mm. So mm-hmm. her Mars is consistent, even if she doesn't have many of the same characters story to story. Uh, mm-hmm. It's always the same Mars with the same cities and the mm-hmm. and, and the lost ancient civilization slowly dying. Yeah.
2: Mm hmm. Yeah.
3: And it's the the way she's
2: evoking emotion reminds me of, you know, the, the lone, the lone hero of um, perhaps cynical bent, but still untarnished virtue, stepping into an a a milieu of trouble uh, and gray morality. Um, I I really, I really enjoy that. Uh, Mona Lisa, what do you, you are. So I should say this for anyone who doesn't know Mona Lisa very well: there is no one more committed to the craft uh, than than Mona Lisa Foster um, in terms of trying to um, achieve the excellence in prose. So, Mona Lisa, what are your thoughts?
4: Oh, I love I love stuff that that is well written, and mm-hmm. it, her pr- her prose can definitely do that, and that's. I think what you need to fall into a story and forget about all the world around you and all the intrusive thoughts that are roiling around in your brain. a book, a good book, a well-written book has the power to do that, that that sense of immersion that you get where you forget everything. And um, there's there's just you know, for me, because I always have the editor brain on, it's very hard for me to fall into in into that. so I, I totally agree with what you said earlier. To be able to pick up a book and just actually get immersed in it, to where you can read it as a reader, is is huge. Indeed, indeed. So, um, yeah, I'm still getting
2: into her prose work. So, what I what I get from that opening passage, is it feels like a, and I'm not 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 taking a shot at Burroughs here, but it feels like an iteration and an improvement on what Burroughs did with Mars. You know, the the John Carter of Mars stories, like I like those a a great deal, but her writing is just a step up from that in terms of immersion. Uh, I feel like while, you know, we all, you know, Edgar Rice Burroughs is, you know, a grandfather to us all in a way, I feel like this is the same way a, you know, um, the same way a P-51 is superior to a sop with camel but both are classics i feel like this is like the slick down uh you know sleek deadlier version of the prose you would have found in an older uh martian story
3: so to speak well of course she comes from a later time um Mm -hmm. and she and her entire generation grew up reading burroughs yeah and if Burroughs cast this immense shadow over speculative fiction and yeah, I mean, she loved Burroughs. Bradbury loved Burroughs. Carl Sagan loved Burroughs. Everyone loved Burroughs back then. Robert day. Heinlein, of no yeah. specific note. Or... Yeah, we could go on and on. What <laughs> what a tremendous influence! But she made Mars her own. Like I said, she made it a consistent character. It's this uh, it's this faded ruby with this uh, amazing allure to it. Uh, mm-hmm. And she painted it again and again in these wonderful moody colors it's a character of its Mm -hmm. own and she does some really cool stuff on venus i know that uh uh one of my favorite of the three john stark stories is actually set on on on, i guess my very favorite of the three john stark short stories is set on venus but um which one is that uh i believe that's enchantress of venus give me a second the the titles of these are so similar it's like a (laughs) lot of old pulpy stories let's see yeah enchantress of venus Mm-hmm. That's the one with the seas of mist.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's uh, I have not read that one yet, but I am looking uh. forward to it. Um, and it, speaking of the Burroughs influence, um, Eric John Stark, uh, the hero you just mentioned, is very explicitly uh, inspired by Tarzan, it seems to me, or Mowgli from uh, earlier Rudyard Kipling stories from the oh, jungle book. it's It's an interesting take, an interplanetary take on um, the story of uh, the human child lost and found again.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I wish there were a lot more uh, short stories of Stark. He's really mm-hmm. her only uh, continuing character. And there's okay. only three stories of him. Uh, two of them were eventually lengthened probably by her husband uh, into slightly longer novellas. And then, of course, mm-hmm. there's the, uh, the trilogy, uh, the three mm-hmm. skate books, which I honestly don't like as well. Um, mm. I don't. Th- it's more Barozian plotting where it's more frying pan to fire constantly. It's not that I dislike them. I think I just, uh, I think the plotting in her earlier short stories is stronger.
2: Mm-hmm. It, you feel like it. It definitely feels like in, like someone wanted a longer word count rather than this is
3: what served the story. Well, those. maybe. I mean, there's some really cool stuff in it. It's just that Stark in the short stories is so independent in charting his own course, and he spends so much, uh, like the first book, the first skate book, he spends most of it uh, somebody's captive and then moving Mm -hmm. to be someone else's captive instead of being the master of his own fate. Mm
2: -hmm. Um, It
3: has one of my very favorite beginnings in speculative fiction, but then after that... Anyway, here I am dogging one of my favorite writers. I love the majority (laughs) of the work. I just... If you're going to explore it, I don't know that you should start with scathe Mm -hmm. um, because I think some of the earlier stuff is uh, superior. Okay, I could buy that. Where where would you start? Well... um, I believe that Bain still has a number of collections uh, like the solar system stories, or maybe even the Martian stories. Uh, if mm-hmm. But those are all e-collections. And if you're not an e-reader, then there's two places I would recommend uh, as your starting point. Uh, the first is the best of Lee Brackett, which was written, which was put together while she was still alive by her husband. It's a nice starting place, although it doesn't have all of the best. And it has some at the, uh, some of the back of the book from the end of her career, which are uh, a little bit less adventure stories, but there's some great stuff in here. This is my preferred one stop. This is called Sea Kings of Mars and it's one of the Millennium Press releases, but mm-hmm. it's unfortunately out of print. If your library has it though, uh, this is this is an exceptional best of collection. I think out of here, it has almost all of my favorites. I might trade a couple at the beginning and put in, I don't know, four or five others for those. I and mean, it doesn't have Sea Kings of Mars, also known. Wait, it does have Sea Kings of Mars. Never mind, which is <laughs> one of her very best. You now, if you decide to go all out, this is the way to go right here. These are the half, these are the Hafner press hardbacks. Each oh, one wow. of these, each one of these costs a pretty penny. They were fifty dollars a pop. Oh uh, wow. But I love brackets <laughs> so much, I bought them one at a time as they came out. And this yeah. is nearly everything except for the uh every speculative fiction thing except for the uh, the eric john stark novels which i already had a copy of uh mm-hmm. and i guess it's i guess it's um, missing just one or two uh minor things but uh, mm-hmm. yeah this is the way to go i mean look look at these beautiful covers oh, This wow. one even had this one even has a forward by ray bradbury uh who was best man at her wedding and one of her dearest friends
2: i did not know that that's interesting
3: yeah. Uh, when uh, she lay dying, uh, mm-hmm. she, he was the last person she spoke with.
2: Because her called husband her. had already passed. I do remember that from her. That's bio. right.
3: He called yeah. her on her hospital bed. Oh, wow. Yeah.
2: yeah. That is, uh, you know, I don't think $50 for a hardback of your favorite author is is all that extreme. I have the folio edition of Frank Herbert's Dune, so I've definitely done,
3: uh, I, I, I've been a little more extravagant for, uh hardbacks that I love um well especially since a lot of these stories have never been collected Uh, a lot of this stuff was uh has just been moldering in older magazines yeah um so this is if you're really into or this is the way to get it all
2: cool cool well I'll keep that in mind
3: um and those are still in print at this point well I don't know I haven't visited the Hafner website in a while the last I saw (laughs) at least two of them were and let's face it the the early stuff is good but the two later volumes are are stronger because mm. it, it takes all of us a while to get up to speed. Even if yeah. we're, even if we start with talent, like Lee Bracket.
2: Yeah. So Mona Lisa as like me coming to Lee Bracket a little later. Um, not, not being as familiar with her pros. Could you talk a little bit about how, uh, Lay's work kind of fed f- f- pardon me. I'm going to leave that in because I'm human. Uh, how that fed into your process for threading the needle.
4: Uh, well, I think my first introduction to her must have been with, with uh, Empire Strikes Back. Oh yeah. Because she did the first, the first round draft of, of, Mm -hmm. um, of what eventually became. And you can kind of see that there with Princess and the Pirate trope, that whole banter between Han Solo and Princess Leia was, was apparently her contribution Mm -hmm. to it. Mm -hmm. And, um, so even though they, they edited the final version was not the one that she wrote. I think you can see her fingerprints there. Like I like to think those are her fingerprints because that is actually my favorite part of Star Wars was the romance between Han Solo <laughs> and Princess Leia. I am I, a girl, okay? Um, and, then, uh, and then, and um, then, so it's it's the characters, it's the characters and the relationships between the characters, and even though we write uh, all these different genres, whether it's space opera or hard, or hard SF or military alt history it's the characters and the relationships that that keep us coming back to the books because like we've already we already know what happens we know what the events are going to be we go back to be with our favorite people Mm -hmm. favorite fictional people as it were and speaking of going back over and over and over again um enter El Dorado with John Wayne Mm -hmm. because like even, even in Romania, where they would chop up all of these uh, American movies into little bits and they would censor them. I was still familiar with, uh, with cowboy films, uh, with Westerns, and I knew who John Wayne was. I didn't know his name, but I knew who he was, just like I knew who Errol Flynn was. So even hmm. though the stories were chopped up and didn't actually um, always make sense, <laughs> I was familiar with them. And then I got to see them uncensored when when we came here and john and john wayne was just one of those people that you could see why i would be very drawn to to that image of of him even though he was he was he had already died by by the time we got here and el dorado was one of those movies that i just kept going to back you know again and again and again and i finally put two and two together that the lead bracket had had a hand in the screenplay that mm-hmm. it, it was one of her projects and I, I, at some point I mentioned to Tony that this would make a great space opera. And <laughs> there it is. <laughs> that, that, was the, that was the inspiration because I really I really liked that idea of taking this um, this veteran who who had lost or who didn't have a lot, um, go start a new life and then even before he gets a chance to actually, do the very first thing he has to take a step back because his friend doesn't want him there. Mm -hmm. And he's willing to do whatever, whatever that friend needs him to do, you know, so putting his, his comrade in arms uh, ahead of his own desires. So that's, so that's the story I wanted to write. i obviously wanted to write a different story from a different angle, but that was the initial inspiration for it. So for me, this this, this this is why I credit it to, to, to her because once I started looking at this, as oh, this is another work of Lee Brackett and I started looking more and more into depth into what she had done and the way that this was written and why, um, I just figure oh, this is a project that's worth taking on.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you did it well, uh, in my not entirely humble opinion. I, I actually think one of the beauties of it is, I love Lee Brackett's screenwriting, but you only have so much time in a screenplay one of the joys of threading the needle is you do get to dig into the, any novel length work. You get to dig into characters in a way a movie doesn't always have time to do. Um, question I have for you, Howard, as someone who's more familiar with their prose is when I look at the movies that lay bracket wrote, including Empire Strikes Back is there does seem to be this constant thread in my mind of, um, past relationships and their impact, like what Mona Lisa was talking about of um, you know, Oh, we were civil war veterans together or against each other. Um, one of my favorite John Wayne movies is Rio Lobo, uh, which it starts in the civil war with a Confederate officer and a, a union officer in a kind of a cat and mouse game. And then they end up by in the post-war era working together because they're both men of honor and, um, that movie might not be able to be made today, but at the time it was actually a very powerful uh, story. Um, And I'm wondering how much of that do you see as a theme across her work when she's going into a different format, because that's one of the things I love about, um, you know, learning artists is learning their tics, learning what matters to them, what they return to uh, when they're writing their, their human drives, not their hyper drives to steal from someone else on the the podcast, right? uh,
3: To my right. (laughs) Well, she was a hard-boiled writer, so her characters come with backstory. They're not young people um, coming of age and learning their power and discovering their destiny. These are people who already have pasts and problems, who are already competent in their fields, and it's these pasts and their current abilities that lead them into opposition or into conflict with these situations or these other people who have contrasting things, people come with people are veterans in her stories. They're established. Um, And if you read her prose and you read Chandler and you read Hammett, although her tone has less to do with Hammett than it does Chandler. um, She implies so much more than she states. She implies emotional state without telling you emotional state. It's so much more powerful and she does that in her screenplays too now it's been a long time since i've analyzed any of her movies in any length and of course uh she only did the first draft of empire so what we're seeing yeah. is uh third or fourth uh oh. removed from what i what suspect she mona lisa
2: is correct about what survived though that in the hostage situation because that's pretty common in her screenplays the fact that empire has a hostage situation in the third act is common to El Dorado, Rio Lobo and Rio Bravo, all of which were her screenplays. Don't worry, Howard, I, I have watched them recently, so I'll fill in the gaps.
3: Well, there you go. There you go. But I think I think that's your strength is uh, is that whole hard boiled sense of people with responsibility and pasts coping mm-hmm. with situations that feel real, even if they're in an imaginary Mars and a Venus that can never be. They're still uh, real people with real feeling things that have happened to them.
2: Yeah. And I can see that in your work with Hanavar to a very great degree. I know Hanavar is largely inspired by uh, our world's Hannibal uh, and that would be a neat concept of its own, but you bringing that, uh, that sense of weight and past and connection and maturity elevates it to a great degree.
3: Well, Bracket was a huge influence on me and continues to be. Um, she's really influenced all of my writing at, at one level or another. And so I'm glad, I'm glad that you see that there. She was my introduction to hard-boiled writers before I even understood that there were other hard-boiled writers. I just thought that was the, that was what she did. And I loved the feel of that. Instead of telling you what everyone's thinking or feeling you imply it with beautiful language and the reactions that everyone has, it's just a, uh, I think it's so much more interesting it's so much less blunt and it's so much more immersive Mm
4: -hmm. that whole show don't tell thing
3: yeah yeah
4: yeah no i i agree i mean that that that's that is one of i think one of the hardest things to pull off as a writer and and you have to allow people to misunderstand you have you have to go into knowing that if i since i'm a show don't tell writer the price i pay for it is that some people are going to get a different something different there's you know i can't i cannot deny misunderstanding
3: right and some people aren't going to see it you know some people yeah. aren't going to understand because you're not constantly telling everyone oh my character's sad or oh my character has a tragic past right. they may not realize that that tragic past is influencing some of their actions if they're paying attention they will. and you right. hope you hope your readers are paying attention but you're going to get some people who don't don't see it unfortunately
4: I and that's so. one of the things I, I liked, too, when, the little bit that I've, I've read of hers, because I did go back in, um, in preparation for this and read some of her short stories, is she doesn't tell you, oh, he was scared. Uh, he, he She lets you conclude that he was scared or yeah. angry or whatever. She, she allows your brain to keep clicking so you're not just a passive bystander who's just you know drinking from a hose. She right. lets you be an active participant Right, but I'm it's sorry. but it's
3: but you're not so distant that you have to figure it out. It's not like trying to read James Joyce or something. You're following along, <laughs> and you're and you're like yeah. totally involved in what's happening. She's very cinematic at the same time. Mm. It's sweeping you forward.
2: Yeah. yeah, But she's not pre-chewing your food. Is what no. is what I is what, I've ca- is what I tend to call it Cause it's a, a real unfortunate trend I've noticed in I'll say movies more frequently than novels because I'm not about to criticize any other li- living novelists' work online because. If well, you don't, we you don't have to mention you don't have to mention them by name. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I really do. While I understand the the impulse to deny misunderstanding, as Mona Lisa put it, um, because that can be very important in other types of writing, right? If you're doing academic writing or technical writing, you know the manual needs to be at an eighth grade level and it needs to tell you how to operate the equipment with no guessing games. If you're writing a novel or a short story. Risking that misunderstanding can be scary, but it's so much more rewarding as a reader when you do pick up on it and it does have the impact it's supposed to have. Um, you know, I um have you guys seen Denis Villeneuve's Dune 2021, the sequel's coming out soon? Yeah, no, all right. So, real briefly, uh, if you're familiar with Frank Herbert's Dune, it's not a bad adaptation, it's, it's a good movie overall, but he the director makes the characters much more modern and American um, than is appropriate for a Baroque feudal setting. Um, that which Dune, even though it's science fiction, is very much a Baroque medieval setting. Uh, in its writing, it it uses anachronistic values and social systems in a far future setting intentionally. And I think there were a lot of decisions made in that movie that try to make the characters more relatable to modern Americans. Um, For instance, uh, you know, the Duke of House Atreides tells his son, oh, even if you don't want to be the Duke, it's okay. You're still my son and I love you. Which as a father, of course, I feel that way about my children, but I'm a 21st century American father. That has no relation to how a feudal lord would feel towards his only heir. And the fact that they didn't have the courage to present that the way it would have happened, in the, the way it did happen in the book, that's another example to me of, of it's pre-chewing my food. You know, it's like like go ahead and show, don't tell. Embrace the difference. Uh, just because someone is different doesn't mean they're a monster. We're supposed to embrace that, right? Um, so I I find that plays into the implication of I'm going to describe for you. I'm going to use your sensory inputs. I'm going to. Give you a scene. I'm not going to tell you how to feel about it. You will decide how you feel about it. I I, I appreciate that in writing, and I appreciate that and appreciate that in the movies I've watched that she wrote, and in the so far the small amount of her fiction I've had time to read. And I just no, I in a rant about Dune. I'm sorry.
4: No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I was I was going to say because I have the same kind of setting. It's a feudal setting, even though it's even though it's far future. It's feudal. They're very much this is about ravages
2: samurai. of honor and threading the needle to a certain extent, right?
4: Right, right. But mm-hmm. mostly, I'm talking about um, the ravages of honor series.
0: Mm-hmm. And, I
4: mean, you, basically, you've got genetically engineered samurai with swords and nanotech, but the society I made it feudal on purpose. And one of my inspirations was Dune because it's it's something that I read, you know, I've read several times. Uh, so even though I have my own opinions about the writing, uh, it has influenced. Um, what I'm interested in writing myself, and I didn't um, sanitize my story for modern audiences. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I get a lot of pushback for, on that because, oh, it's the future. You can't have, you know, you can't have this, or you you can't have women being treated like, or, and I'm like, sure you can't. I just did it, mm-hmm. and I and it makes sense in world. I stuck. With the rules of the world that I created, they and they're angry at me because I stuck with the rules and 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 didn't you know didn't make um, certain characters be more like your 21st century first world suburbanite. Well, I'm not interested in writing uh, modern, contemporary, 21st century first world suburbanites. There's plenty of people doing that. Mm-hmm. I'm That's I'm good. actually interested in doing more interesting characters than that. So. <laughs> There's consequences, and <laughs> you have to bear them, but there it is.
2: No one's work appeals to everyone.
4: That, right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I am not everybody's cup of tea. What a surprise.
2: <laughs> well, I I enjoy both you and your work. Well, Lisa. Um, so, uh, Howard, what would you say um, – you know, getting away from 21st century suburbanite. Have you threaded that needle in your own work? Because you're dealing with like a a fantastical equivalent of uh, post third Punic war Mediterranean, which is obviously very alien. Uh, As much as people think they understand the classical Mediterranean, once you dig into it, it is pretty alien compared to what we live with today in many ways. So when you were, you know, thinking about that, talking about, you know, different value systems, different expectations, what was on your mind or were you just, Hey, I'm out here to play. I'm inspired by this source material and I'm going to do what I want to do with it. And hopefully people like it. What was going through your head when
3: you started crafting that story? Uh, I suppose I should say that to try and be real with the characters, uh, to present their strengths and their weaknesses. A lot of people spend a lot of time admiring all the things that the Romans did right. So I show interesting things that this Roman-like society does that's admirable, but I also show the terrible things that this society has done, one of which is completely raising the city of the principal character of the series and and taking its very few survivors off into slavery. Um, We don't often hear that discussed when we talk about the glories of Rome. (laughs) So, I mean, I, I just try to look at it in a um in a way that's real although i mean it's a fantasy setting with uh (laughs) with magics and in weird beasts and the occasional flying serpent Mm -hmm. um but i try to be i try to be true to the people what what would they really be experiencing what and it goes into some dark places sometimes. I don't consider myself a grim dark writer because I'm interested in writing about heroes. But heroes have to overcome uh, darkness, and they have mm-hmm. to face it. And my character does, and he unfortunately experiences—he's seen some—he's seen some stuff.
2: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. The um, um, gosh, I had a thought just a second. Something you said sparked my brain, but I'm. Uh, prematurely over the hill and trying to remember what it was um the uh, well i'm 40 i guess i guess i can be just cresting the hill
3: uh, you have I'm... small children that's probably what's doing it
2: yeah yeah they, they my, my mother-in-law said you're sharp now justin but wait until about the second one your brain turns to tapioca um <laughs> the, uh, uh that's something i i enjoy in uh both y'all's work is the honesty of the character work in this, in the sense of, um, it's. I think it's absolutely legitimate to write about heroes. Um, I think what some people will do is they will set up straw men and paragons and leave it at that. Um, and neither of you do that in your work, and I, I adore that because it, it's. I oh, this is what I was thinking. I think a lot of people when you if you if you're critical of a piece of fiction that's science fiction or fantasy. A lot of people say, oh, there are dragons in it, or there's interstellar travel, but this gives you a problem? And in my opinion, the dragons and the interstellar travel make it all the more important that the people feel real. Um, maybe that's just a softball I'd throw at you, but I wonder what you guys think about that, if that's something you've aspired to in your writing, if that's been a, an imperative for you.
3: Definitely. Well, Go ahead.
4: Um, I, I was going to say, In reading some of these short stories in preparation for this, I was noticing just how much like uh, Indians her aliens are or how much like uh, how her colonists are just like frontier people, sometimes right down to having hickish accents and dialects. (laughs) Okay, And I'm thinking. I should there should be horses here and a 10 gallon hat, (laughs) you know even though they're on, a, some, they're on some other planet. So there's that inner editor again, right? She's just kind of mouthing off at me. And, but, but my point in bringing this up is that it, it still doesn't really matter because the characters still carry it. And all of her characters, or at least um, the ones I have read seem, seem to have kind of, like Howard said, they were not born on the first page And this is one of those things that I think new writers make a lot of mistakes with, or even some established ones. Their characters are born on the first page. They don't really have a past. They don't have a background. They don't have trauma. They don't have, um, you know, there's, they don't have reasons why they do things. Brackets characters aren't like that. They're definitely not born on the first page. They have pasts and usually they're dark ones because you know, they're, they're fighters or warriors or whatever they didn't have an easy life you know to to get there so they they feel like real people and i think characterization can carry even somebody who somebody like me who's going to object to, well venus doesn't really look like that and mars doesn't really look like that and just just carry you through the story because you want to be with those characters because those characters are somehow resonating with you on a level that is that goes far beyond whatever setting they're in or whatever mm-hmm. genre that they're in
3: I think that's well said. Uh, the character work is what's important. I, I run into now, I grew up watching and rewatching the original Trek. Um, that was about the only speculative fiction that was available when I was a young man, when I, when I was a little kid. Uh, we'd occasionally get, I don't know, like Space 1999 which never made much which never made much sense to me uh occasionally twilight zone reruns would come on but we didn't see doctor who in my neck of the woods we never saw the outer limits in my neck of the woods it was just star trek and i realized as i got older that some people loved it because of the bad episodes and the cheese and they love those just as much for me i loved the character work on the really strong episodes Mm -hmm. and it would sell it would sell uh even as I got older and began to recognize that, well, the special effects were good for the time, but maybe they're not, maybe they're not uh, transporting as much. Uh, but the characters, the great episodes sell uh, even, even the old sets in the Starfleet uniforms that look like pajamas, they sell it because the character work is so good. Uh, it, the characters have to be real for me. I can I can ignore the rest of it. But if the character work isn't good, then I don't care how much sense your the mechanics behind your warp drive, how well you've worked that out. I don't care about your political system. I don't care the multiple layers of the government that you figured out and how much sense it makes. I really don't care. I I have to believe in your characters. So, Howard, I was listening to your uh,
2: interview on Blasters and Blades, another great podcast uh, for those of you looking for uh, speculative, fiction-focused content for your morning drive, Uh, and you said something about New Trek that just had me, like, thumping my steering wheel, and you you pointed out that the thing, the worst thing J.J. Abrams' Trek did, maybe you didn't put it quite like this, but this is how I remember it. The worst thing J.J. Abrams' Trek did was they took Captain Kirk And boiled him down to the frivolous, skirt-chasing, daredevil, risk-taker elements. And it completely ignored that James Tiberius Kirk, as he is in the original series, through the six original movies, is actually an incredibly responsible officer who feels a great deal of obligation to his people and to his mission. And nine times out of ten, absolutely follows his orders and tries to accomplish his mission to the best of his ability and only bends the rules at utmost need, like my first officer is going to die if I obey this order without good reason. So yes, now I will bend the rules. Um, So I I really appreciated that observation and I could not agree more. Uh, James is a much richer character than people realize in the original series.
3: The the original character was created by veterans, um, Mm -hmm. uh, written by veterans or people who had grown up seeing veterans and experiencing World War II. And so all of those characters have duty and responsibility because they've experienced it. They're actually hard-boiled. And hard-boiled doesn't mean that they're walking around with trench coats and top hats, excuse me, trench coats and fedoras. Uh, (laughs) it, it, It means that they're not constantly talking about how they feel or whining about their past. They're just getting the job done, and they've all got some baggage. The Mm -hmm. new Trek, Kirk is destined to be a great leader. The original version of Kirk, he suffered. He's learned painful lessons. He has earned those stripes. There's a reason he's the youngest man to command a starship. In an original Star Trek parlance, a starship isn't any spaceship, but a starship is one of the capital fleets of the ship, Mm -hmm. uh, of of the service. Yeah, so... Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel strongly about that. Kirk was a, a important figure for me growing up, um, uh, one of my heroes. And to see the the screwy interpretation or or the meme that he's just this stupid skirt chaser, um, and, and, you know, that's not even right. Don't don't even get me
4: started. <laughs> I I, th- I think there's a there's a tendency with newer fiction to have this start snark. Snarky character, the snark is supposed to carry it all, and they do it without thought because, uh, you know. So we're back to first world, twenty first century, first world snarkiness in throughout throughout most of history, and I would argue even in a lot of places around the world today, that kind of talk would just get you punched in the mouth and your teeth knocked out, and if if it didn't, uh, your family would be reining you in because you are not an individual in the same way that most of us are individuals. You are part of a larger, you know, a clan or something like that. And there are going to be people reigning you in. You are not going to be strutting around speaking truth to power um, Mm -hmm. and solving problems with speeches (coughs) like a lot of these um, new, Mm -hmm. all of these newfangled shows (laughs) are doing. (laughs) Um, and I've, and heard, I think, I've heard
3: you speak eloquently about that before. You were talking to me about the princess, the, the princess speaking to power. Um,
4: the, the princess doctor, astronaut.
3: Yeah, yeah. Draft, yeah.
4: Admiral, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All she has yeah. to do is give a speech and problem solved.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Society, society is just waiting for her to wander up and say this brilliant thing and everyone's like, Oh my god, we didn't see that. Now now we will totally change. Yeah. But oh, what, yeah. If we nicer, <laughs> what if we were all nicer, Howard? What if we were all nicer?
2: That's all you need to do. Yeah. Maybe if you put a little Christmas in your heart. Sorry, sorry. That's cultural superiority. Uh what if you put a lot of nonspecific uh festive celebration in your heart? Yeah, no, I I agree with both of you very 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 much so. And Sorry, just one more thing about Trek. The power trio of Kirk, Bones, and Spock being all three are actually... What I love about them is you could boil them down to the archetype of compassion, logic, and intuition for Kirk. But that they are all three still combinations of all three. That McCoy is is the compassionate advisor to Kirk, but he is very intelligent. And Spock is the rational advisor to Kirk, but he is actually terribly compassionate in his actions. And that Kirk is both very intelligent and very compassionate and has the gut instinct required to be a good commander. So I, I think that's something Trek has not gotten right. And I, I actually do like next generation just fine. A lot of it, not all of it. And I really like deep space nine, but I think that no Trek has actually equaled that, which is why original series remains my favorite series even the next gen is what was on the air when I was a kid.
3: I don't think new Trek ever got what McCoy's purpose was. I mean, I tried watching, Mm -hmm. I've watched, I watched two movies. I didn't bother with the third. Uh, Carl Urban was awesome. He was probably one of my, probably my favorite of all of the, uh, the (laughs) portrayals, but the script didn't know what to do with him because the writers fundamentally misunderstood who McCoy was or what he was even doing there. Yeah, they, they, that was a
2: perfectly good waste of a Carl Urban because Carl Urban is majestic in anything he is in, whether it is Xena, Warrior Princess or Lord of the Rings or Judge Dredd. He's good, even if everything around him is terrible. Um, right. But if you'll permit me, just uh, uh, I know we're off the, the subject of lay bracket, but I actually watched Star Trek Into Darkness while deployed uh, and all my army friends uh, in Afghanistan were highly amused by how upset I was. <laughs> they're, they're like, Watson, you're taking this way too seriously, I'm like, no, you guys don't understand how bad this, I have to tell you no, sit down sit down, we're going to talk about how bad this move is Just like, we're on patrol in like four hours, bro, we need some sleep <laughs>
4: it's too bad I so, um, recorded that, because I would pay real money to see that,
2: because you know I can, right, you know I can get off on a tear um and these poor guys who are just casual, nowhere near the nerd level I am, are just like, "Oh Lord, we 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 uh we put a coin in the jukebox. I guess we got to listen to the song." <laughs> <laughs> so we are coming up on forty-five minutes, which I think is probably good to to get some closing thoughts about Lay Bracket and uh, her contribution to the craft uh, and to science fiction, speculative fiction, and just you know fiction in general. So she she branched. Uh, I'm sorry, she uh covered a broad swath of genres. Uh, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. So um, Mona Lisa, you go ahead. What's final thoughts on Lay Bracket?
4: Um, I'm, I'm just, I'm really thrilled that um, I got to know her work and that to, to discover that there's so much of it, so much more of it out there than I was aware of. I just have to find the time to actually dig into it a little bit more because I think that um, I mean, she, I think I think she has a lot that she can still teach me, and and I'd like to take advantage of that. But so far, you know, so far it's 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 just been a great experience digging into into the work that that I have so far.
0: Her Our, work,
3: her work is a well to which I constantly return. Uh, some of her work I read uh, almost every year, like uh, the Sea Kings of Mars, which is a. Uh, uh, a short novel, also known as *The Sword of Rhiannon*. Um, it, it's just amazing. But then, so many of her of the works written from her middle to her late period are, are astonishing. Like um, uh, *The Moon That Vanished*. That's another one set on Venus. I, I use that one when I teach my heroic fiction workshop. Uh, it, it's Did just you such a take that, Marilisa. We, we yeah, yeah. Get in that okay,
4: You need to teach that because I want to take that. <laughs>
3: If I weren't so busy writing Hanavar, I would have uh, <laughs> I would have been teaching it again this semester. You're
2: not doing it at Dragon Con?
3: <laughs> no, no. I mean, I don't know if I could teach. I see the problem with these is with this workshop is that you have to read the story ahead of time and read a couple of things ahead of time and then come prepared to discuss it. And so if I could actually if people wanted to do that ahead of time, um then we could Analyze these stories and talk about all the great things in them, but it would take it would take a whole lot of um, uh, preparation on everyone's part. But uh, yeah, I <laughs> mean, it's, it's great stuff. Fair Enchantress enough. of Venus, Black Amazon of Mars, Last Days of Shandacor. uh my, my God, there's just so much. The Veil of Astalar. Um, she. She. She was one of a kind, and there's a reason that I've long named her one of my very favorite of all writers and why I still follow that. Um, yes, she can be learned from. And I tell you, when I, when I typed in uh, um, The Moon That Vanished, I could not find an electronic text of it. And so I had to supply it to the class to read. And I discovered that uh, typing it in gave me an even closer look at her techniques. You know, it's like, it's like the words were flowing through me onto the screen and uh, it made me realize, well, that's a way to get to know a writer's work even better is to actually just type it in. I wouldn't recommend doing that on, I don't know if you want to, if you want to type in the wheel of time or something, (laughs) Uh, I don't know how many people want to sound just like Robert Jordan anyway, but, uh, but for, but for a short story writer, or, or if you want to uh, try out someone's technique, who you really like, and type in a chapter or something—maybe your favorite chapter. It was it reminds really me of that a, movie *Finding Forster*,
2: really when Sean Connery's character has his uh, protege do that. Ah.
3: Does,
4: if you, if
2: you've never seen that one,
4: it's—I've it's,
3: seen it. I forgot. I forgot that bit, though. You're right.
4: Yeah, he does. Yeah, so he I've, does. Yeah. I've done that. Mm-hmm. Typed in, typed in the first chapter of a book. I, I, I was, I was trying to teach myself how to write. I've done that. It oh, wasn't. that's cool. That's cool.
3: Well, it certainly worked with me and, and, and Lee Brackett. I saw I noticed things that and I've read that story multiple times, but typing it in uh, mm-hmm. took it to a whole different level. It's Like, oh, wow, I'm seeing things here. I didn't notice before. Yeah,
4: I know. there's there's like some neurological thing going through your fingers.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Muscle memory is the thing. Yes. Yeah. Um, no, that's super cool. Um, well, guys, thanks so much. Uh, my thoughts mirror your own. I, I don't think I'm going to come up with a, another creative or more profound way to say what's already been said. Really excited to dig into Lay Brackets prose work. Have appreciated her screenwriting for years. Uh, Mona Lisa, where can people find you online if they want to learn more about craft, find your books, or generally hang out with your internet persona?
4: I have uh, a website, monalisafoster.com. And I also have a substack which mostly focuses on craft, so that's more more or less for writers. Um, I have "Threading the Needle" coming out December fifth, um, <laughs> and the third book in this series is coming out that uh, October twentieth. And Very I cool. can be found at all the stores, and I should also be in accessible through libraries because I'm wide. Very cool. Very
3: cool. Howard. I'm at uh, howardandrewjones.com. Uh, I don't update it nearly as often as I should. I think I mentioned I'm writing Hanover all the time. Um, as far Good. as uh, I other... can't
2: wait for book three.
3: Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, I do appear an awful lot on uh, Facebook. I must check it two or three times a week. Uh, that's howardandrewjones.one. Uh, and if if it's the Howard Andrew Jones who's talking about sword and Sorcerer Hanovar, that's me. I'm occasionally on Twix, although I've never liked it, and I'm just I, I basically just bop on every now and then to to read about sword and sorcery, and then discover something some horrible thing that someone's talking about, and then I leave again. Um, there is a whole bunch of uh, uh, writer information on my blog because I used to update it a lot more regularly, and I have all kinds of articles on writing techniques and stuff. Uh, just because I haven't written any, in a, written much about it in the last year or two, doesn't mean that there isn't some good stuff on there. And of course, my books are. I think this just came out as an ebook, but isn't available in print for another week or two. This is the sequel to Lord of the Shattered Land, which is right here. So I hope you'll check them out.
1: Yeah.
2: And I like to reiterate my recommendation for both. Uh, actually, right, Ravages of Honor as well. I've read the first two books. I'm looking forward to reading the third Threading the Needle and the Hanover series. All great books, uh, all inspired by many classic authors, but including our topic today, Lay Bracket. Thanks so much for spending your time with us here on the Bane Free Radio Hour. And we will see you next time. Good night.
1: And now we bring you our audiobook serialization of Tinker by Wynne Spencer. Inventor girl genius Tinker lives in a near-future Pittsburgh, which now exists mostly in the land of the elves. She runs her salvage business, pays her taxes, and tries to keep the local ambient level of magic down with gadgets of her own design. When a pack of wargs chase an elven noble into her scrapyard, life as she knows it takes a serious detour. Tinker finds herself taking on the Elven Court, the NSA, the Elven Interdimensional Agency, technology smugglers, and a college-minded xenobiologist as she tries to stay focused on what's really important, her first date. Armed with an intelligence the size of a planet, steel-toed boots, and a junkyard dog attitude, Tinker is ready to kick butt to get her first kiss.
0: She had Maynard take her to the yard, and as she hoped, oil can was there. Her cousin hugged her and held on. He had heard about her kidnapping. His obvious source of information, Nathan was there, glaring at Maynard as if he were responsible for dragging her away instead of returning her. Tinker kicked him. Act nice. He's one of the good guys. This is Nathan Chernowsky. He's a close friend of the family. Nathan, this is Derek Maynard. I recognize him, Nathan stated, barely civil, but extended his hand. Officer Chernowski, Maynard shook hands. It struck Tinker that they were the same height and coloring. Nathan, though, was nearly twice the width, all muscle, and had a steady plainness to him, like a piece of stone. What the hell happened? Nathan asked. Your front door was wide open. Your tripwire was activated, but your home system was shut down. Tinker sighed and tried to explain, keeping the facts bare. She didn't bother to mention the NSA misgivings that her life was in danger. Maynard, however, added them in. "'I need to get back and deal with the NSA agents,' Maynard finished. "'There's a slim chance they'll be freed by morning, but I'll let you know before they are.' "'Thanks.' After Maynard left, Nathan hugged her, lifting her off the ground. "'Hey!' she complained tired of being manhandled for the day. I was worried about you. He put her down. I can take care of myself, she said, more for oil can's sake than Nathan's. What's this? Nathan rubbed the mark between her eyes. Oh, that, she sighed. Windwolf has elevated me to elf status or something like that. Maynard says it's kind of like he adopted me into his family. Nathan frowned and rubbed the mark harder. You let him tattoo you? No. She jerked her head back. He had the spell initialized and coded to a word and a kiss. Apparently, the mark is a big deal, so it could have some authorization coding in it, so someone with a temporary tattoo kit can't duplicate it. He kissed you. She had never seen jealousy on Nathan before, but still, she recognized it on his face. Cut it out. It was a little peck on the forehead. She turned away from him as she recalled cuddling with Windwolf at the hospice. Had that actually happened, or was it some drug dream? Look, it's a good thing. The NSA tried to kidnap me, and Windwolf's mark kept them from doing it. It was hard to tell what annoyed Nathan more, that the NSA had grabbed her, or that Windwolf had permanently marked her. She hadn't suspected that Nathan could react with such primal male chest beating. He's the Viceroy, Nathan. Get over it. And even Nathan could see the unlikelihood that an elf noble would be interested in a little junkyard dog. I'm sorry, Tink. He turned her toward him and leaned down to kiss her, cautiously at first, and then hungrily. She was too tired and annoyed with life to enjoy it completely. When he broke the kiss, he leaned his forehead against hers and asked huskily, do you want me to take you home? That put a thrill through her. Nathan, her place, her big bed. No, that was too scary a thought, despite the sudden wanting throb inside of her. The couch? Yes, she could deal with the couch, but still, the bed was frighteningly close by. No, she said once she swallowed down her heart. I've got some things I want to do here, she lied. Then, because she knew Nathan wouldn't allow her to go home alone, not after today, she said, Oil Can can take me home. Oil Can looked struck dumb. When he realized that they were talking about him, he nodded. Yeah, sure. Okay. Nathan stepped away reluctantly. If you need anything, just call me. I will, she promised. See you tomorrow night. Nathan went to his squad car and drove away. It wasn't until after he left that she realized he meant for their date. What the hell was that all about? Oil can broke the silence. What's tomorrow night? We're going to the fair tomorrow night. You're dating Nathan? Since when? Friday. You've got a problem with that? I don't know. It just seems weird. You two kissing? He squirmed. It's like you're dating me what the hell does that mean? Well, you know, Nathan's like family. So? She kicked a dead headlight sitting on the ground and sailed off to smash with crystal clarity. You want me to date a complete stranger like, like, she couldn't say Windwolf because that would hurt. Maynard? No. Well, maybe. Oil can rubbed at the back of his neck. I don't know. Nathan knows you're smart, but I don't think he knows how smart. What does that have to do with anything? She didn't want to point out that she and Oil Can got along fine, even though they both knew she was smarter than he was. You're only going to get smarter. You're not happy unless you're learning something. Nathan, he's at the top of his game right now. He sees you and thinks he can handle it, but he doesn't realize things aren't going to stay the same. Could you at least let us get one date in before you doom the whole relationship? As long as you keep in mind that it's probably not going to work out. Why not? You said yourself that Nathan already knows what I am. I don't know if Nathan has ever really listened to you. I mean, when you're talking about racing or bowling or horseshoes, he's listening to you. But when you talk about what's really in your soul, the real you, he's tuning you out. His eyes glaze over, and he does all sorts of fiddly things. And if you go on too long, he tries to shut you up. He does? Embarrassingly enough, she had never noticed. She shrugged it away. If she didn't notice, it couldn't be something hugely important. I'm going to have to date someone sometime. Have you told Nathan about CMU? Actually, Lane released me from that. She said I only had to go to college if I really wanted to. And? Oil Can asked, as if it was still a possibility. She opened her mouth to say no, but for some reason it came out, I don't know. Nor did she know later, as Oil Can dropped her off at her loft. She cleaned up the mess that the NSA agents had made of her place, trying to wrap her mind around the sudden changes in her life, Too much had hit at once. If it had just been Windwolf or the EIA or CMU or the NSA or Nathan, maybe she could have dealt with any one. She finally drew decision trees to map out her possible actions. Windwolf yielded no branches. There was nothing for her to actually do, so she tried to delete him from her mind. Unfortunately, sometimes a mind wasn't as obedient as a piece of hardware. Nor did the NSA tree provide actions. They were dealt with for the time being. EIA worked out to be a simple help Maynard or annoy Maynard. While Windwolf's adoption obviously provided her with protection from the EIA, it seemed wiser to help the EIA. Nathan broke down to the simple go on the date or cancel. Because of her age and Nathan's reticence, neither would lead to massive changes in her life. The tree for going to college, however, disturbed her greatly. The branch for attending splintered into multitudes of possibilities. Staying in Pittsburgh yielded unending sameness. For the first time, she wondered if Lane was right. Was she in danger of stagnating if she stayed in Pittsburgh? She glanced at Nathan's tree. If she dated him, at least that was some change. She circled the go on the date. She had promised him to try to look older. That required better clothes and makeup, of which she had neither. She made a note to get both in the morning.
1: That was another installment in Wynne Spencer's Tinker, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judgoitz and good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars.